for those parents who didn't get the memo and would like to um, usher the kids to Children's Church under fifth grade, our content this week will be uh, even more than last week, if that means anything to you, up to fifth grade. Okay, heads up for everybody here. Next week, we will meet here at 9 o'clock. We'll try to remind you several times during the week, but the MIC has to shuffle things around occasionally, and this is one of those Sundays where we have to meet at 9 o'clock. So next week, 9 o'clock, mark it down. Tell all those people that are out of town for the holiday weekend to be here at 9 o'clock next week. Three weeks from today, we are going to start our prelude to revival. We've been talking about it for weeks And you may ask, well, what is prelude to revival? And here's the answer. You've got to admit that from time to time, as an individual and as a church, we experience these seasons of sluggishness, and we kind of drift along. We kind of get caught up in the concerns of every day, or maybe we've established some idols within our hearts. And so what we want to do for prelude is a time for us to pause, set aside some time, cry out to God to have mercy on us, for him to renew our minds, to transform our hearts, and to move our hands out in action. So three weeks from today, we'll start a six-day time together. We'll be in the Word, hearing preaching in the morning and at night, lots of prayer, lots of time for worship. But that's going to start three weeks from today. Now, as we've been running up to that prelude to revival, what we've been trying to do is deal with sins in our hearts that may keep us from gospel renewal. And we've been calling these sins the seven deadly sins. Now, there's nothing more deadly about these sins than other sins because all sin can separate us from God without the atoning work of Jesus Christ. But we've been marching through these seven deadly sins that we need to deal with in our hearts if we want gospel renewal to come into our lives and walk with the Lord. The sins we've dealt with so far are pride, envy, wrath, sloth, and today we're going to deal with part two of sexual lust. I'm glad to see you actually recovered from last week and made it back from today, but we are once again in Proverbs 5, so you want to turn to Proverbs 5 again in your Bibles. Last week, we talked about introduced lust, which is this immoral sexual desire. It's where sexual attraction crosses the line and becomes lust, an immoral sexual desire. And Proverbs 5 gives a good depiction of lust. What's going on in Proverbs 5 is that the father is communicating to his son not to fall for the adulterous woman, not to fall into sexual morality. And if he does, all the destruction that follows. So for those of you who were not here last week, I'm actually going to read the first 14 verses of what we covered last week so you can kind of see about the destruction of lust. So let's start with verse 1. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep my discretion. And your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. 
She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. And keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I do not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Sexual folly will take your honor, will take your best years, and it'll be merciless. And we hammered that home last week. But this week, the passage takes a turn, and it starts to talk about the, the positive of sexual encounters between a man and a woman in a marriage relationship where he encourages his son to enjoy sex with his wife. Now, I know there's a lot of backgrounds here. You may have heard of a lot of crazy things in different churches that you've grown up in, but I'm going to say something pretty astounding here. God is not against sex. Let's just take it another level, okay? I know this is, we're teaching here. God created sex. It's not like he created Adam and Eve, and then he looked down and said, what are you doing? No, he created sex. Okay, are you with me? Yes, he created sex to be between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. So as we continue on with the rest of this chapter, I want to give you three things that are kind of going to be mixed together this morning. And it comes from a, a book I was reading. It's a good, good quote, a summary of the chapter from Raymond Orton. Let me put it up for you. He says, sexual folly destroys, sexual wisdom satisfies, and Christ is better than the best sex. We talked a lot about last week how sexual folly destroys. And this week we're going to spend a lot of time on how sexual wisdom satisfied and Christ is better than the best sex. Now, you may think I'm just going to be speaking to married people, and that's not going to be the case. I'm going to address singles. And I just I, I feel like we need a lot of grace to be here because I know some of you just have are coming from different places when the topic of sex comes up. There, there can be a lot of brokenness, uh, and uh, just a lot of things are going on. And some things you may hear may strike you, and you go, oh, I don't want to hear that. And other things you hear, just understand people need to hear different things. So we need a lot of grace to float around, and a lot of grace for me as I'm talking about this, because I'm just, I'm more uncomfortable than you. Can you imagine standing up here and teaching all of you about sex? All right. Are you with me? Show some compassion. All right. Let's go. This is a lot of fun. Verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. The gist of what the dad is saying is that instead of having sex outside of marriage, enjoy sex with your spouse. And the wife here is portrayed as a cistern or a well. 
go, go home and call your wife a well or a sister. So the man, he's to drink water from his own sister and from his own well. And basically what the dad is getting at is that one of the greatest protections in marriage from sexual immorality is sex with your spouse. And it's not just an idea that's communicated in Proverbs. The idea is also communicated in the New Testament. Let me give you, let me give you some verses here. 1 Corinthians 7, 4 through 5. Maybe you've never seen this before. I really want you to, to check this out. The Apostle Paul says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So you get the idea. In marriage, the bodies belong to one another so they can enjoy sex together, and they are not to deprive one another of sex. Did you catch that? They're not to deprive one another of sex. Basically, sex is not to be used as a weapon against your spouse by withholding. You don't want to go there. Talk about a lot of marriage problems when they start using sex as a weapon by withholding. It says when you're doing that, if you're away from one another, you can give an opportunity for Satan to come in and tempt now, there are times where you would refrain from having sex. There are other times you can mention. But the, in the context here, the only reason in this context for refraining from a normal, frequent sexual relationship between man and woman in marriage would be because they can come apart for a while, mutually agreed, so that they can pray. But they are going to come back together and have frequent sex because they don't then Satan will come to lead them into sexual morality. And I know the question I get all the time, and I don't even know how to answer it. The question is, how frequent is frequent? At least once or twice per day. Okay, I'm just kidding. All right. Wake up, people. Okay. The Bible doesn't give a number. Okay? I'm not going to give you a number. You guys talk about it. You agree and... And it creates this barrier for sexual temptation against it and also increases closeness. It should be ongoing. And it's a big deal. I mean, really is a big deal. And I don't, I don't know if we make it a big deal, but we should make it a big deal within marriage. In fact, for those of you who read the Puritans, I don't know if there's anybody who reads the Puritans, but there's a famous story. It's always floating around about the Puritans on how one woman shared with her pastor in the congregation that her husband was ignoring their sex life. And the congregation took it so seriously, they brought the man up for church discipline. Now you're all interested in church discipline all of a sudden. Can you believe that? That's like a big deal. There's got to be these protective barriers within marriage from sexual temptation. And a lot of that is the frequency of sex between a man and a woman within marriage. Now, having said that, I know that for some married people, that is not as simple as it sounds, as there is sexual frustrations and uh, that may be emotional or physical that need to be worked through. It's not like in the movies where every just thing just seems to work out and everything's just fine. Some of you have gotten married and you're like, what is the problem? 
It's not working. And sex takes work, trust, and gentleness, and communication, and self-sacrificial love. And we come into marriage with a lot of baggage. Some of it is abuse, past sexual experiences, on and on and on. And sometimes it just doesn't work so well within marriage. I just want to say, look, we know that. If that is your struggle, you are not alone. Come talk to me or Pastor John discreetly about this, and we, we, will, we will hook you up with another mentor that can encourage you. I know it's maybe something you, you and your spouse don't even want to talk about. It's so embarrassing to you, but you're not alone. If there's something going on where you guys are not able to have sex in the marriage, please, let's talk about this. We don't want to be shut down in church. We want to communicate healthy sexual activity between a man and a woman in marriage. We want to encourage you in that. Let's keep going. Verse 16, he says to his son, Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Now, now one way that this is commonly interpreted is that the springs and the streams of the water is the wife, where she's no longer overflowing as a well for her husband, but she has been scattered outside into infidelity. Here's the idea. Since the husband has cheated, now she has cheated as well. Look at verse 17. Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Once again, he cheated, now she's cheating outside of the marriage with strangers. Now, maybe that's what it is saying. This is a very difficult text to interpret, but I I don't think that's what it's saying. So let me just kind of give you what I think 16 and 17 are saying, perhaps I'm wrong, maybe the other interpretation is right, but check this out. Maybe what's going on here is that, because first you don't want to say just because the husband commits adultery, the wife's automatically going to commit adultery. We, we don't want to teach that, do we? No, that's not always going to be the case. So this is, I think, is what may be going on here. The streams and the springs mentioned in verse 16 are euphemisms that refer to the male procreation capacity. Now, if you, need me, if you need an explanation of what that means, go see Pastor John. He can explain that to you, but I'm not going to explain that to you. <laughs> so when this young man, so when he, he has sex with a prostitute or an adulteress, his springs and streams are scattered outside of marriage among strangers. So get this. He and strangers are being sexually satisfied in the same place. That's an interesting description of uh, adultery or sex outside of marriage. It's, it's a community sex of sorts because it's a, almost a sharing of multiple partners, the strangers. It'd be a great description of pornography. Because you have one sex scene and multiple people, wherever they're at in their computers or everywhere, are being satisfied sexually in the same place. And he's saying, don't go outside of marriage and have sex in the same spot that all these strangers do. Don't do that. Let them be for your wife alone. There is a godly way to proceed. Verse 18. Let your fountain be blessed. And rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. 
wouldn't you be so embarrassed if your dad talked to you like that? You'd be so embarrassed. Dad, don't, don't talk about those things. You'd be so embarrassed. But he, the dad's, he's, he's, he's pretty much saying, son, I want you to get married, and I want you to have such great sex that it makes you delirious, and it just knocks you out. That's embarrassing, Dad. And yet it's almost like a prayer. He prays, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. When was the last time you were actually thankful for your spouse? I I, I know they're not perfect like you are, but you should consider being thankful for them. And you can find something, hopefully, of why you're thankful for them. And, and tell God, and tell them why you are thankful. Go home today and tell them why you're thankful for them. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. And he, and he continues on with this, 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 some imagery here of a deer. As his wife is to be viewed as lovely and graceful. And the son, he's to enjoy her body at all times. There's that frequency again. Which means he's not to step outside of marriage at all. And in this marital lovemaking, he is to become intoxicated. That's some terminology the Bible uses that, that love is better than wine from the book of Song of Solomon. So basically, if you can kind of just put it all together, of what he's trying to communicate with his son, he's saying, look, son, have fun. Enjoy one another. Be creative. But no outside influences. Don't go outside don't bring them in. Don't go out and search something else. Don't bring porn into the marriage to create sparks. Don't bring erotica in the marriage to create sparks. None of those books are in there. No, 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 no. You create your own sparks. Enjoy your wife. Enjoy your husband. Marital sex can be great sex that God endorses without guilt or shame. Did you think that sex can actually exist without guilt or shame? It can. Within marriage, between a husband and wife, that God has ordained great sex without guilt or shame. And then he finishes with them in verse 20. He says, why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? And embrace the bosom of an adulteress. He says, look, son, I want you to enjoy your wife so much that it will seem totally pointless and stupid for you to even step outside of marriage. That there is to be frequent sex within marriage that it just doesn't even make sense why you would want to step outside of marriage and embrace someone else. So, so far, we've looked at God's sexual wisdom within marriage. It satisfies. It's the way God set it up. He created it that way. Sexual wisdom within marriage satisfies. And I'll I'll just, I mean, we really could just stop there, move on, say amen. But I know there is some tension in this room. And let's just be really clear. There is some sexual tension in this room. And there is sexual tension in this room because many of you have certain sexual desires 
No need to deny those. You have certain sexual desires, but you have no God-given way to fulfill them. You love the Lord. You want to honor him. You want to glorify him. You have these sexual desires. And yet, from the word of God, from which you stand, there is no way for you to have those desires fulfilled. What are you to do? I'm going to address three groups of people here. Three groups of people that may experience this sexual tension. The first group are those of you who are married, but in your marriage there is little to no sex. You know who you are. Just basically, it is a marriage without sex. Second group I want to address is the singles in here. That's probably 60% of our congregation. You're single, and maybe you experience sexual desires. Most likely you do. And the third group I want to address are those of you who struggle with same-sex attraction. I want to talk about that as well. So before I address each group, let's go back to the text and start with verse 21. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. And he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. All right. So it's very clear. Path of lust, sexual sin will ensnare you. It will entangle you in these cords of sin. And if you turn your back on discipline and embrace folly, then you're going to be led astray on the road to destruction. Now, we spent... If you missed the message last week, we talked about that. You can go online, listen to it. That's what we talked about, destruction and folly of sexual sin. But look at verse 21 again, please. Verse 21. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. What's going on here is that God is always watching. There's nothing that can escape what he sees. And he watches and sees what you feel and do sexually, even sexual morality. He sees and he sees the judge. Uh, I know there's a scandal in the military not too long ago where a general was um, committing adultery and he was hiding it. Well, well, all along, God was seeing that. God sees, sees what's going on with you, and you know that he sees all. But get this. We, we always say that God sees, and we, we kind of like, oh, he's going he's gonna to get me. He's going to judge me because he sees my secret sins. But also think of it this way. God sees also your purity. He sees to approve and to bless you as you are walking in purity and holiness with him. Now, let me be very clear. Look, we're all sinners. That's, that's the reality. We, we all have sinned sexually. And Jesus Christ has died on the cross for our sins. We put our faith in him. God's wrath is on Jesus, not on us. And we are forgiven through his death and resurrection. And that means that in God's eyes, he approves of you in Jesus. He blesses you in Jesus. We know that. We know that, okay? And I don't want to pass over that too quickly, but I'm saying you know that. But at the same time, get this. God can still look on you with approval and blessing based upon your choices. He can see your choices and say, you know what? That was a good choice. I approve of that choice. That glorified me. 
I'm going to bless you. And the blessing's not always spelled out, and maybe we won't even feel that blessing into eternity. But there is a way that God sees. Don't just think, always he's going to get me, but he also sees to approve and to bless. So I want you to keep those things in mind. I want to come back and address the three groups of people that I want to address with that in mind. Now, basically what I'm about to say is just discussion starters for your ethos community. Ethos communities, smaller groups that meet throughout the city during the week, talk about these things and add to them. I'm just getting started. I mean, we don't have much time left. I'm just, I'm just bopping these things off, okay? Number one, the first group I want to address is you're in a difficult marriage where there's little to no sex. You know who you are. I'm not talking about physical problems. We talked about that earlier. If you have physical problems, emotional, something else is just not working, come see me. We'll talk further. The group I want to address right now are those who are in a difficult marriage and it is impacting your sex life where there is little to no sex within marriage. What are you to do? Okay, don't step outside of marriage. You know that. Don't turn to porn. You know that. Don't turn to some other fantasy land. You know that. But what are you supposed to do when you have this sexual tension? Well, the way I see it from the Word of God, you have two viable options. Number one, you can talk about it. You can try to deal with it. I know it may be the last thing you want to talk about and deal with, but you may need to approach your spouse and say, look, there's something not right. We need to start talking about our problems. And you may have to admit that you're part of the problem, that you're a contributor of the problem. Get with some other people, counselors. We can encourage you. We can meet with you. But if there, there is problems happening within your marriage that is impacting your sex life, that is a big deal. We want to work through these conflicts, whatever's going on. And if that doesn't work, if there is no resolve, if one partner is just adamantly just will not, will just, they're just hardened in their heart, like there's no breakthrough, you don't bail. You continue by God's grace with the power of the Spirit to love, be gentle, encouraging, faithful only to them. And you say, that is a helpless and a hopeless existence. Let me remind you of something. God sees. He sees what you're going through. He approves of your purity. He knows your struggles. He cares and he, he looks to bless. Maybe it will be blessed in this life, maybe blessed with his greater presence, maybe blessed in eternity. I can't tell you that, but I have met some of the most godly people in some of the most crummiest marriages. Would you not agree? Some of those godly people I know are in such masses of marriages. And we are here to encourage you on that path to purity. Now let me address singles, singles who still experience sexual desires. And all this week I've been talking to singles because I just don't want to say stupid things to singles. I don't. And I I read something this week. I thought it was interesting. It was a whole list, a big list, and the list is entitled Stupid Things People Say to Singles. And I just want to share with those, some of those with you today. And so... These are what I don't want to say. If you're single, maybe you've heard some of these things. There's a ton of them. I just picked a few of things I don't want to say. All right, number one, has anybody ever told you, you you should probably need to lower your standards. You're only interested in men and women who are above your level. Well, that's really encouraging. (laughs) Thank you. 
Another stupid thing you say to singles, I'll put this up for you. This is in the honor of Valentine's Day. Maybe there's sin that you need to deal with, and he, God, is preventing you from inviting someone else into your sin. So you probably have a sin issue if you're single. That also is encouraging. All right. This one's fun. The next one. If you just lost 20 pounds, a guy would be able to see how wonderful you truly are. Punch them. All right. <laughs> but let's get kind of spiritual with these. <laughs> you get to be married to Jesus. That's really encouraging. And the last one in honor of Valentine's Day, Jesus was single on Valentine's Day, so you're in good company. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? Okay, I don't want to say any of that to you at all this morning. So we got that out of the way. I didn't say those things. So I'm talking to singles once again. People get married to one another, hopefully, because they're attracted to one another. And yet sexual attractions, we know, according to the Bible, should not be acted on until people get married. So what are you to do? if you experience sexual desires as a single person. Let me put a verse up for you. It's from Song of Solomon. Maybe you've seen it before. It says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. That is uh, interpreted among our single crowd is that hold back your sexual passions until they come to fruition one day in marriage. Once again, easier said than done. So what do you do when these are stirred up within you? What do you do when you have this tension? Well, here's some things you already know. Talk, it's okay to talk about them to the appropriate people. Maybe in an accountability context, you say, look, I, I want to stay pure. I'm struggling here. I have these desires. Can you pray for me and can you encourage me? Because these are real temptations that I'm facing. Second thing that you could say, and you know this as well, is if you're dating someone, don't, don't mess around. Don't mess around. And if you're asking the question, like you would say, well, Pastor, how far is too far? That's the classic question. And don't you wish there was a verse on how far is too far verse? And, and let me just say, if you're asking that question, you're probably going too far. All right? So just think about that as well. Think about that. And, of course, you know the, the no porn and, and no stepping outside into immorality. But one of the things that I found very helpful is that as you are single, it seems wise to treat the opposite sex as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's your sister in Christ. That's your brother in Christ. What, what is a godly way that you can treat one another? And just, just know, if you're, as you're walking the path of purity, God sees. He approves. He blesses. He, he's encouraging you. Maybe no one's told you that. I want to encourage you. Good job on walking in purity as a single person, fighting the fight of faith. Good job. Our culture is crazy. Our hearts are crazy. Good job. God sees and improves. But I feel the need to add this. As great as marriage is, it's not the ultimate. It's not like you're living your life as a single person thinking, man, if I can just get to the ultimate and married people just kind of look at you like, man, what's your problem? If you could just get married, then you would just have arrived at the pinnacle of everything. 
I am so sorry if that's the message that we've given here at this church. I'm so sorry if that's the message that I've given. That is in no way, shape, or form are we saying that marriage is the ultimate because we know Jesus is the ultimate. And single life can be very, very fruitful, awesome, huge blessing. The Bible says great things about singleness, so in no way, shape, or form do we want to dog on singleness or make you feel as if you are lesser, no matter what age you are. So I'm going to share with you the thing that probably helped me maybe more than anything else in my singleness before I was married at 25. And this may not be helpful for you, but I want to go all spiritual on you and say it's in the Bible. It was helpful for me. Here we go. Let me put it up for you. 1 Corinthians 7. Verses 32 to 34. This is very helpful. It says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. One of the greatest aspects that I experienced in the single life was undivided loyalties. It doesn't mean I wasn't busy. I was extremely busy as a single person. I know some of you as singles are extremely busy. You have a lot of responsibilities. But one thing the single person doesn't have to deal with is coming home and working through the emotionally time-consuming role of pleasing a spouse. And I'm not saying that in a negative sense, but all of you who are married is just time-consuming emotional. You just can't think about your own thing in the sense of what you want. There's just so much time. And the argument that the Bible's making here, Apostle Paul, is he's saying, you know what? As you are single, you have these undivided interests. You can focus solely on pleasing the Lord. Now, that may be helpful for you or not, but when I was single, I just, you know, just thought, and I didn't even know I was ever going to get married. I mean, I was at a point in my singleness where I was thinking, you know, I may never get married. And at a point, at times, that was okay with me. And at times, that wasn't okay with me. And some of you have those back-and-forth emotions. But as you're single, and almost like the Bible says, you know, you can make the most of every opportunity. You make the most of every opportunity. We all can make the most of every opportunity, and it seems like as a single person, there are times where you're going to not to worry about pleasing a spouse, but pleasing the Lord in a more different way. So just want to throw that out to you. Talk about it in your groups tonight. Last group. Now I'm going to move on to the last group. I want to address those who are among us who struggle with same-sex attraction. Now, there could be many factors that can cause one to have same-sex attraction, and I'm not going to go into all that. But the follower of Jesus knows from God's Word that God's Word forbids acting upon those desires, no matter how loud the culture may be, no matter how loud your heart may scream that you want to act upon what you feel. The follower of Jesus must choose the path of purity. And I know it is not easy. It is not easy. 
But I want to tell you this, and I want to make sure you hear me. I don't know who in here. I just want to make sure you hear me. You are not identified by your temptations. Just because you struggle with same-sex attraction does not mean that you are identified as a homosexual. You're a beloved child of God. Your identity is in Jesus Christ. There are people who struggle with same-sex attractions in positions you would think, well, they they shouldn't be in that position. You know, we all have struggles. I want to share with you uh, uh, two particular people who are in ministry who struggle with same-sex attractions. One is a pastor. Let me give you uh, this pastor who struggles with same-sex attractions. This is what he says about identity. He says, No one battle of the many we face however strongly, defines us. But our identity as Christians flows rather from our relationship with Christ. Back to identity. Our identity is in Jesus. That is who we're defined by. I also want to share with you a church planner who struggles with same-sex attraction as he offers this wisdom to those who are fighting the fight. He says this, Jesus is better than sin. He is more valuable, comforting, and satisfying than homosexual behavior. And I can say that from experience. If you fall, get back up and keep pursuing him. The world will tell you to embrace your homosexual desires because it will make you happy in this life. Jesus tells you to deny yourself. And follow him. You must decide every day who you will believe and who you will follow. The way of the world or the way of Jesus Christ. I was interacting this past week with a believer among us who has these struggles. And I just want to know, you know, what's going on and how the, the battle is. And one of the things they said is that the battle at times can be very lonely, a very lonely battle. But they also said that an important piece of fighting is the Christian family and the church being with them. And so if, if you can relate, I, I, I don't know what your church background, what it was like. I don't know if you could even be open in the past about your struggles. But this is a place, these are communities where we will walk with you we will encourage you on the path of purity, of walking with Jesus in the same way that you will encourage us and our struggles and our temptations. And I, and I want to say this is a safe place to walk the path of purity with Jesus. And we'll encourage you in that. So I'll end with this. Not only is Jesus better than sin, but Jesus is better than sex. I know it's hard to believe. It's true. Jesus is better than sex. 
there were these two guys interacting. Uh, there was this conference called uh, Legacy. It was at an urban conference in Chicago. I don't know if anybody went to Legacy Conference. But these two guys, they were interacting with regard to purity. And as they were talking to one another, saying, man, how can we stay pure? How can we encourage one another in a culture that elevates sex as the ultimate? And they were saying, look, Sex is not the ultimate. Sex has got to be put in the right place because God is the ultimate. And then they told a little story, and I don't recommend you do this because they didn't do this. This is just an idea that they had, so don't do this. All right. So these two guys, they talk about, what if we went up to a six-year-old kid and we said, what is the greatest thing on the planet. And the six-year-old kid think about it and say, chocolate. And then they would come back and say, hey, there is something far better than chocolate. It's sex. And the six-year-old would think about it and say, nah, Nothing's better than chocolates. And so God comes to us. What is the greatest thing on the planet? And we say, sex. And God says, there is something greater than sex. It's me. And we think about it, and we say, nah, nothing's greater than sex. Do you see? Do you see the reality? God is the ultimate. We find our greatest satisfaction and joy in knowing him through Jesus Christ. And I know we get so whacked out, and our emotions and our feelings get us off, but the greatest joy is in Christ. No matter where you're at today, no matter what relationship, no matter what struggle, the greatest joy is found in Jesus Christ. And if there's stuff that you need to start working through and dealing with, I would encourage you to do that now. Do not cover it up. Do not run away from it. It will surface again. Today is the day. Start finding joy again in Christ and Him alone. Let's pray. Lord, you have created a great thing between a man and a woman in marriage, and we have marred it. We know that. We have marred it. We've messed it up. We, we have fallen into sin. We've taken the good and made it corrupt, and we ask for forgiveness, that you would forgive us in Christ where we have failed, where you've done foolish things. We've departed from your standards, but we thank you for the forgiveness of Jesus who makes us new who redirects our thoughts, who transforms our hearts. And I just ask that we would be sexually pure in the areas we need to walk in purity and walk with you. And Lord, where healing needs to come, may it start to come. But in that marriage right now, and there's got to be more than one in here, there's just resentment and bitterness and anger, even just hearedness. I just ask that you would soften hearts. They would start to be able to work through their issues 
for those who are experiencing temptations that may seem too strong, may you assure them that you are sufficient, that you see, you approve, you bless, as you empower them to live for your glory. And so, Lord, as we sing these songs, may you impress your truth upon us, convict us if we need to confess sin, convict us if we need to talk to someone else. I just ask in this atmosphere of grace, Lord, that you would start to minister us as we sing and worship you at this moment.